Rutgers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Well, hello there, my friend. Welcome to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the show is the author of Scoop Winning High-Low Concepts for the Hold'em Mind, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, Greg Vale. Greg's a red chip poker coach and cash game pro who specializes in the world of Big O and Omaha High-Low. Greg's poker career is split into two acts. The first act was 2005 through 2010, when he was a young, immature kid with horrible spending habits and very little discipline trying to figure out how to navigate the world. Spoiler alert, that didn't end so well. So, recognizing he needed to disrupt his lifestyle, Greg joined the army in 2010 until he was medically discharged in 2015. Act 2 began in 2015 when Greg fell back into the world of poker, except this time he was a totally different human being who had gained some much-needed maturity and discipline. Since then, he's written three books, has helped student after student learn how to improve their split-pot skills, and lives for providing and raising his daughter. In today's episode, you're going to learn why Greg chooses to play and teach split-pot games, the lessons and wisdom Greg took with him from the army into poker, how teaching others how to play the game of poker has helped both Greg and myself become better players, and much, much more. So without any further ado, I bring to you my conversation with author and coach Greg Vale. Greg, good afternoon, sir. How you doing? Hey, buddy. Good. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Welcome to the show. Very happy to have you here to, to kick things off. Typically start by asking you about your journey through poker. Like where did you find poker? What does that look like? Oh, uh, way back. The, uh, so I'm one of the original moneymaker crowd, I guess. We um, all are. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> we're, not, we're not the poker newbies anymore. We're like, we're the people now. Yeah, I, and, I, uh, I remember like, going to the table and always being the youngest person there for oh, yeah. like many years. And now I, sometimes I go to tables and I'm like the oldest person. Dude, I play um, big O in Omaha all the time. I'm always the youngest person. At the that's table. true. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's, a good point. Yeah. It's so I'm one of that crowd. <clears throat> um, I went to college. Uh, I started college in 03 at Arizona state. And uh, that was the perfect timing because it was in the fall, you know, and that's when ESPN was airing uh, the 03 world series. So I had a bunch of roommates from uh, Boston who were a bunch of DGENs and everything. Um, we couldn't even play around a golf without making a hundred bets on something. And uh, you know they got into got me into poker, and um, that took me. I, I was just obsessed with the idea that you it was a skill game, and I had no idea. It was like when I was eighteen, I thought it was just gambling. You know, I thought it was no different from anything else that would fit under that definition. So. Once I figured out that it was, um, you know, a skill game, I was just obsessed with it. And I dove in pretty hard um, into learning. And once I realized that there was this whole skill set that I didn't even know existed, it fascinated me. 
why was the aspect of it being a skill game? Why did that resonate with you so much? Like growing up in life, were you involved in competitions? Was like that something you were actively striving to be like the best at the the best you could be at the endeavors that you chose? Yeah, it was. I don't. I don't know how to explain it. It's just like I felt. I've always when I take on something, I want to. I want to like I want to master it and then move on. You know, and so <clears throat> I grew up playing golf and I went to college for golf at ASU and, you know, it was, that was always my focus. And, you know, I, and I saw a lot of similarities between golf and poker. And then I just, I don't know, it was a, it was an interesting kind of awakening when I realized that I, I had this lifelong uh, held belief that was completely false. And I was like, wow, I, I have to educate myself. Just like this, you know, giant haymaker of ignorance just hit right in the chin. <laughs> you know, like I need to fix this. And <clears throat> it was fascinating. I, I dove in and then, um, you know, I used 2004. It took me like, that was my like, when the curve started going upwards. And um, in 05, I quit my job uh, for poker because it was, it was not a, I want to be a pro. It was my job is costing me money now. And, you know, I was making three times more than I was working playing cards. So I thought work got in the way and here we are 15 years later. Yeah, did you, did your parents, did you talk to your parents about the decision? I assume you had no responsibilities in life uh, <laughs> when I was 20. Yeah. yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah, they weren't, um, <clears throat> they weren't happy about it. Actually, they didn't turn around. My parents didn't turn around to the idea of poker until after I got out of the army. Um, because in 2010, I decided to change. I wanted to make a huge change. Um, I did not like the poker lifestyle. Um, I didn't, Let's talk about that. Like you, you, oh, yeah. know, you quit quit your job because you're making more money than you were capable of. In you said 2005. That was 05, Yeah. 05. So from 05 to 10, what happened that led you to joining the army? It wasn't one thing in in particular. Um, it was just kind of a culmination of things at the perfect time. And um, my entire family's been in the military, going back. I mean five generations. Like I was the last male holdout that had not been in the military. And it was, it was something I always wanted to do, but I never had the opportunity. And then, so after five years of playing cards for a living, um, I was, had a lot of bad habits. I was, I mean, any immature kid with, you know, playing cards for a living, like, you know, bad shit happens, <laughs> you know, it you was, do dumb stuff. Oh yeah. God, it was terrible. I mean, bad spending habits. I mean, I had zero money management, no discipline and I was doing well because I mean, if back in that, in those days, if you could just, I don't know, count to five, you could probably win at poker. <laughs> you know, And, and uh, <clears throat> you know, it was like after a while, it just got old, you know, and, there, I when I had a realization in like, I think it was 2009 or 08, something like that, where I stayed at the Rio for three weeks during the series and realized I didn't hadn't seen the sun in like 25 days or something stupid like that. I was like, this is bad, man. Something's got to change. And so, and then in in right in the beginning of 2010, I had a five year relationship that ended, and that was like the last thing tethering me to that lifestyle. Why did it end? It just fizz, fizzled out on on its own accord. Uh, no, I, uh, she went her own way. <laughs> okay. So uh, she went her own way and, uh, um, made you reflect on your life and everything that's happening, especially, I mean, 
it's hard. You know, you're a kid. You don't know how to live a fulfilling, oh, no. balanced life when you no. come up through poker, right? Like the one thing that the kids nowadays who come up in the game have that folks like you or me and God only knows what the people before us had was the ability to have a mentor, right? To seek out wisdom of the lifestyle. We were just making up the rules as we went along. That's so true. We absolutely were making it up as we go along and it was so wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Look look back now. I'm like, Oh my God, if I could go back to Oh five, Oh man, I would be done (laughs) right now. I'd be on the way. I'd be in a beach somewhere. Yeah. But but unfortunately you, you can't, uh, can't go back in time (laughs) retroactively, but uh, yeah, it was, (laughs) I think too, there there are some benefits of youth, especially as it relates to like just naive optimism of things will work out. I I think that that was something that I had early in my career when I didn't know my head from a hole in the ground was like, well, whatever. Like if it doesn't work out, I'll just do something else. Like just go every, in more. I, I'll just go in more. Like I had multiple situations where I just stake a friend and he's like, Oh, I got second for, you know, 50 K and it's like, Oh, cool. Like I just added 25 K to my bankroll, um, staking my friend in this silly little tournament. Like just these things just kind of organically happened. I, I don't know. Like I have a lot of luck to, um, be grateful for, for those experiences, but you know, you don't know what you don't know. And when you're ignorant, there's a fearlessness that comes with that, um, that youth that is, in in my opinion, a little bit envious, just you're bulletproof, right? Yeah. Well, you think you are, you think you are, you think you're bulletproof. (laughs) I look back at it now and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm like the exact player that I was, that's the people I prey on now. I'm like, Oh man, I was so bad. Like how yeah. did I make a living? <laughs> cause they were worse. <laughs> oh, cause everybody. Oh God. I mean, those are the glory days. Oh, five to 10. Like those were the days where you didn't, Oh my God, you could be just a total nit. And I mean, if you, if you played 12% of your hands, you'd probably still grind out a solid living, you know, and that's just, you can't do that anymore. Like ever. It just doesn't work that way anymore. You just get destroyed. Yeah. You get absolutely ripped apart. And you know, it's a lot of those things I didn't know. Then I learned from the army, ironically, weirdly enough, doing a total 180 in life. And, uh, you know, and when, once I realized that I was, I was being, um, I was going to be medically retired in 15, I found out in 14, but once I realized I was on the way out and there was nothing I could do in the military anymore, you know, and I go right back to poker and it was just like a totally different person. Tell me about this transition from like, Oh man, the poker. Like I know myself in 2010 is not a very pretty picture. Um, going from like the poker lifestyle to the army that had to be quite the scenery change. Oh, it was, it was something else, you know, and it was, it provided me a lot of things in good, both good and bad. And it was such an eye opening experience. And I'm, I, so I enlisted at 26, um, which is a grandfather in army standards. And, you know, I, I would originally wanted to go into the air force to do, uh, launch rockets because I, I'm a science nerd. And they told me I was either going to, I had a 50, 50 shot of Vandenberg, California or Minot, North Dakota. And I said, Nope, not doing that coin flip. (laughs) And, And so wanted to, then my next idea was to be an officer in the Marines because I, I've been in martial arts my whole life and the fight or flight instinct, there's, 
there is no second half of that equation, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so <clears throat> then, so there, there were some restrictions on the officer program and it was going to take a long time to get in. And I wanted to go in now. So I said, I took my packet over to the army and uh, asked for an infantry slot and they sent me off right away. And, you know, a few months later, I wake up in the infantry at Fort hood, you know, in the end of 2011 <clears throat> and uh, realize I'm in a platoon full of kids, you know, with a, with a 20 year old who's never ha- held a job in his life, trying to tell me what to do with my money and my <laughs> everything. And I'm like, Oh, this is not good. <laughs> I'm like, this is not, this is not going to go well. And so after, <clears throat> after about a year in the infantry, doing nothing but training because my unit was not deployable at the time they uh i decided i was going to go into special forces and so i dropped my packet the day i was eligible and uh, i went off to selection was picked up first time go and off i went (laughs) you know it was that was more my crowd that was more but i wasn't i was usually the youngest person around you know usually people in their late 20s was about it yeah Tell me about that that transition into special forces because that's oh. that's a a different animal than oh, the, the those infantry. Are my people, man. Those <laughs> everything they were and everything the unit stood for and why people were there was what I wanted out of the military. It was people who wanted to do the good the the good work, the hard work, but the only thing they they really cared about was the guy next to him. There was no competition between anybody. There was we were a team every sense of the word and the, just the, the meaning behind everything we're doing, you know, it was always a clear giant national, like this matters. You know, there was no, there was no picking up trash on post. <laughs> it was none of that stuff. <laughs> How did that feel um, going from, you know, poker, which doesn't always give human beings this sense of camaraderie, brotherhood right. or fulfillment ultimately. It's- to point. to yeah. have that brotherhood i imagine that that probably felt really nice it was um it was um liberating is a good a good word it was it was just what i needed <clears throat> at the time you know and the um the lessons that i learned were were just incredible and i it did not take long before i started drawing parallels between my former career and the military and you know stuff like one of the mottos that we were taught from day 1 was we are not special operators. We are not more advanced soldiers. We're not anything special. We're just the same as you guys, as everybody else. The only thing that sets us apart is we're a master of the basics and routinely master the basics. And when I heard that from, you know, one of the cadre, uh, the teachers at the Q course, I heard, when I heard that, I immediately thought about poker. I was like, holy crap, that's all it is. I'm like, that's all, that's all it is, is to be better than, you know, a vast majority is to master the basics. And as long as you have that, then you have the foundation to move forward. And yeah. Just, it just clicked. I'm like, holy crap. Now I'm going to go play cards. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's fundamentals, right? Like it's yeah. just being strong, uh, ha- having strong fundamentals. And that will take you to places that you you can't even imagine as it relates to poker yeah. career and m- multiple other careers, right? Like there's a, a stat. It was Clay Thompson. He set the three-point record um, in a playoff game for Golden State one year. Mm-hmm. It was something like 14 threes or something like that. And I remember reading about it. And you know how many dribbles he took before he shot those? They're probably exactly the same. 
one. He <laughs> the took the exact same one. No, no, he took one dribble. Period. It was just catch and shoot, right? Like yeah. just catch and shoot, catch and shoot. And it's like, yeah, people work on a bunch of things that don't ultimately matter. But yeah. master your fundamentals, master your jumper, and you just you reach heights that you just can't otherwise. It's not sexy. It's not sexy yep. sitting there practicing your jumper five hours a day or practicing like your pre-flop play and no limit hold them. Like yep. it's not fun. It's not sexy, but it's necessary. Yeah. And that's actually th- what everything you just said the last 30 seconds is exactly what started my first book. It's literally like word for word. What started it is that when I realized my, my military career was coming to an end <clears throat> after getting hurt about four times too many, and all I was doing was going to medical appointments and out processing and ready to go home. And what's next. And I found a, a few card games in Raleigh and <clears throat> where I was stationed at the time. Um, well, it was Fort Bragg, but Raleigh was uh, about 70 miles North. And, you know, I found a bunch of home games, I was playing a lot more cards, obviously, because I only had to go to work once a week. And um, <clears throat> a friend of mine, um, Sean Dees, who is the ultimate inspiration for my first book, you know, was this, was this wonderful Hold'em player, you know, was very effective at Hold'em, knew his stuff, knew all his, but when he went to play high-low, he just couldn't, he just never win. And so that fundamental disconnect, why can somebody be very, very good at something else, at one thing, and then use the exact same system and completely suck? I'm like, how is that possible? And then I realized there's, you know, there's a, there's a hold'em mind, there's a single pot mind, and then there's a split pot mind. They are not the same. <clears throat> so I built a paper. I started writing a paper for him, which was just out of, I want him to do better. You know, that's all it was. And outlining the fundamentals that weren't there, you know, and just the basics. And building on a, on a foundation, I figured, you know, he was smart enough that once I gave him the basics, he would figure it out from there. And so I gave him the paper and he, it just clicked. Well, that paper, then I expanded the paper more and more and more. Eventually, it was 100-something pages. And then uh, Redshift got a hold of it, and well, through coincidence. Um, There's a random meeting. And they wanted to publish it. Um, and that led to the first first book. And then I went out on my own for two, three, and four. But, what was the, know, name of the name of the first book? I, I've only seen Scoop. That yep, was that's the-, the, the black cover. Scoop vol- is volume one. Um, it's, you know, big O and PLO8. It's winning high-low concepts for the hold of mind. Um, and that I wanted to make that pretty clear that I'm addressing the hold of mind, you know, I'm addressing everybody who knows hold them and wants to move into anything else. Cause everybody who learns poker knows how to play hold them. So it's not real. I'm not really marketing to a niche people that only play high low. It's, you know, we created something for people to understand, you know, yeah. you, you know, hold them. Now let's move into something else. Hold them has become just synonymous with poker in general. Right. So like it's basically for people that are playing poker because Pretty much everybody in the game nowadays, they just we just know how to play hold'em. We know what hold'em is. It's just the the primary game. And you're right; like the, there are some other just amazing poker games that are valuable and require different skill sets. Like Very I different skill sets. Yeah, I came up playing limit hold'em. I won because players were really really bad, and when the players got better, I stopped winning at limit hold'em and to be honest i was never a very strong limit hold'em player um and i never i never enjoyed playing limit hold'em like it was just like ugh. i go to the commerce and i'm playing the 40 80 and like i just 
don't love this. Like I like, I like having the spectrum of bet sizes. I, I like the puzzle of like the no limit aspect of it. And that's what resonated with me. But, um, you know, big O Omaha high low, I, there is certainly a market for people who love playing cards to learn those games. It's like another thing that I, I I've said on this show multiple times, like the people that learn mixed games at the casino have this natural built in edge whenever, a whale or somebody wants to play a game and they're like, okay, we're going to play a three game mix. Well, you just eliminated 97% of the players from the casino from sitting down in that game. And now you're just going to play three or four handed, you know? Right. And that's, you know, it's a really good point, you know, and that's, I've found so many advantages in single pot games that I learned from split pot games, <clears throat> you know, but that was, you know, that's, that's the really hard part about getting what originally was getting, the the idea wrapped around my head and, it, and it, like accepting the fact that when somebody says I want to publish this book and I think you should coach, I'm like, dude, you know, I can barely even find a big O game to play in, much less a market for people who want to learn it. And I have never been more happy to be so wrong in my life. <laughs> it was like just at you know a flood of people, and even to this day, I'm just my schedule is always full with teaching people to get better at split pot games and. You know, I didn't think there was a market for the, but I was, man, I was wrong. That's great. I was so happy to be wrong. <laughs> well, whenever you're one of the only coaches, I mean, you, you get all the supply, right? Like, uh, yeah, I think. Yeah. That seems to be the thing. I, I keep looking, I'm waiting for somebody else to publish a book on big O and just, it, I'm like, cause I want more information. I want to compare. I want to, you know, get better and learn somebody else's way of doing things. That's if hopefully somebody is more effective you know, so I can learn too. And like, you know, I keep routinely, I I've heard it probably six, seven times. Oh, I thought about writing a book and then I, I didn't do it. And you know, then yours came along and half the stuff you're going to say, I was going to write. I was like, well, do it anyway. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, say the other half. <laughs> yeah. Like then do it anyway. It's what do, you, what do you got to lose? And you know, originally that was uh, a couple of friends of mine, you know, are like, you know, I don't think there's no big old book. There's no market for it. Um, you know, I don't, I don't mind being the second or the third person in the market. I don't want to be the first. And then, you know, if it goes bad, you'll look, I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. It works for me. So it's if like somebody a, doesn't like it, then whatever. It's an asymmetrical risk, right? Like if it, if it doesn't do well, then nothing happens. And if it does do well, then you have a steady stream of students and you know. steady stream of revenue for a very long time. Yeah. Well, my, honestly, my original I guess, motivation for getting, for writing my first book and now four um, <clears throat> was I wanted to bring more people into the game, you know, yeah. because I loved playing big O and I loved playing split pot games. They were better games. They were always more fun. People played for longer. You know, people didn't hit and run. People weren't being, being idiots with the hoodies and sunglasses and, and all that nonsense. Like they weren't doing that because it was just a more social environment and I enjoyed it. I just flat enjoyed it. I won more. I won more often. I was more effective and I wanted more people in the game. So I thought, you know, the best way to, you know, bring some players into the fold is to give them a start, a foundation to start. And maybe they'll take, you know, they'll play after reading the book. And they did. It certainly worked. I routinely, routinely am told, you know, Hey, I, I got into, I got into big O after reading your books, you know, and then, somebody shows up with, you know, some total trash hand. I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to hear about what you did not, or don't tell anybody you read that from me. <laughs> <laughs> 
but uh you know and it worked but apparently there's a, a lot bigger market than i thought which i was pleasantly surprised by yeah and you know the the books that come afterwards are likely going to be from one of your disciples right somebody that uh, has a couple that could yeah yeah that that, <laughs> have, that have read that have expanded upon the material and that have their own twist and add the extra information so it's likely just a matter of time yeah there's there's definitely I, two of off the top of my head that I know of that have been with me for a very long time could definitely and have, have made their own systems and kind of made their own path using what I've taught them. And they play a very different style of game. And, you know, they most certainly have a professional game now and can think for themselves. And, and you know, and they evolved into different poker players, which is really great. I love to see that, you know, and um, I'm, I'm still waiting for a, a second you know, series or whatever. I would love to, you know, I would absolutely love that somebody else did, but uh, so far we're, you know, three and a half years in, nobody's done it yet. Well, give it time, you know, all all things come with time. Um, I want to go back a little bit. Mm -hmm. When you had the perspective of poker coming from a kid and then left poker and then came back, Yep. What was your fresh new perspective? Like what was the difference there between the, you know, the old you and the new you? I had a different understanding of what needed to be done to succeed. Because when I was when I was a kid, you know, and I'll I'll play I'll say post or a pre-25 years old, so pre-2010, when I was just a kid playing cards. It was just a game. I I enjoyed it. Yes, I made a living, but I had no discipline, no, you know, no habits, no good ones anyway. <laughs> and um you know luckily i didn't have many vices that was that was good um my worst vice in life at the time was like chipotle so that's okay yeah that's not <laughs> not the worst yeah not the worst and um but then after the military i had the discipline to understand what it takes to stay healthy and the the connection between the mental side of things and the physical side of things and i'm not in the world's greatest shape anymore. Cause you know, but like there are some basics that need to be done. Like you can't, you know, you can't stay in a room at the Rio for three weeks and never see the sun. You can't, you can't do that. Yeah. It's, <laughs> probably, only... it's probably not going to be good for your poker game, no. your health. <laughs> it's not good just for anybody for any reason. No. And there was, there was times like I had a house in Phoenix and a place in Vegas at the time. And I was going back and forth all the time. And there were plenty of times I'd get up, I'd jump in, I'd literally get out of bed, jump in the car, and drive to Vegas and then like not even check in, just start my session there. And I'm like, I'm like, I wouldn't even go to the house and drop my stuff off. I'm like, and you know, it was, took three, four hours to settle in before I was actually focused and like just value it was just leaking value everywhere. And you know, the army gave me the focus, the discipline, the understanding what a good schedule looks like. And I turned it, it treated it like a business. I said, if this is what I'm going to do for a living, I'm going to do it 100% you know, effective, you know, just like we did in the army. We didn't do anything 98.5% effective. It was hundred percent or all the way or none, like at all. And, um, you know, it was just being responsible and learning what it takes to win and what it takes to learn. And then I also learned the discipline to understand what I didn't know, you know, and, and in, in the military, at least in, in SF, when I got into that world, um, you know, we, when you realize the, I don't know, the vastness of what you don't know, um, it's a, it's a very powerful experience. You know, when, you know, um, I don't, there was a sign, I forgot the name of the scientist, but, 
or uh, maybe it was a poet way back in the day. It said, the more I know, or the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know anything or something to that effect. <clears throat> the more I know, the less I realize I understand. Yeah. The, and, the more uh, I learn, the the more I realize that I just don't know anything yeah, <laughs> about anything. Yeah, something to that effect, like right. whoever said that. But, um, you know, and that's, it was a powerful thing. You know, when I, I get in the middle of here, I thought I was this high powered infantryman who could, you know, yeah, cool. I could shoot and never miss. Great. But what does that mean? That means nothing, you know? And then I get into SF and I learn all the weapons that I didn't know. And I learn all the security and, you know, the bigger picture and realize when I got in there, I was like, I'm, I'm a nothing. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't know anything. And that was a very humbling experience and a necessary one too. So um, applying that to poker once I got out, because once I realized that I was far more effective at the end of my military career playing cards than I ever was before. And I realized I'm like, well, this is apparently this is just who I am. You know, this is this is my path, if that's the case. If I can get out of poker, do the perfect 180, you know, and go to the military and then get out and I'm going right back to poker. That's that's my probably meant meant to be. Yep, that's my path. I'll take it. <laughs> Definitely worth places to be in life. What did your process look like post army compared to pre? Like what were the upgrades that you made logistically on just a day to day basis that allowed you to be more effective and to be a pro? Um, it's actually an indirect, I have to give an indirect answer because my motivation when I got out was different than what you probably think. So I got out of the army and, um, I did not have custody of my daughter. So I have a 14-year-old daughter now that I have full custody of. And uh, to make an excessively long story short, um, I didn't have much contact with her because mom took off and disappeared when, when my daughter was born. And so for the longest time, I didn't have much of a relationship with her. And so once I got out of the army, that couldn't be stopped anymore. Um, it was not exactly my choice. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and um, so I went through the process to get um, partial or at least half custody of my daughter. I used poker to fund that legal venture, which is a lot for everybody who's been through a custody battle knows what that entails. Um, well, I came out the other side with a hundred percent and she's with me full time and mom's not in the picture anymore. You know, good for my daughter, but that was always my tether. You know, my reason for doing everything was to support her or support my daughter. And so once that I used that as motivated, I have to be better for her. I have to be you know, I have to be more effective. I have to always make more money so that I can defend her and stand up for her. And um, <clears throat> once that was done in 2018, it was January 2018 is when I got, um, I was awarded full custody. And um, that allowed me to then focus. So all the time I spent trying to be better for that reason ended up making me a better player and a better, well, a coach at the end, but I wasn't, you know, 15, 16, 17, I wasn't coaching. I was just playing. And, um, you know, I ended up refocusing everything towards that with that goal in mind, a singular focus on the future. And but, I never had that before. Yeah. It's, it's a much more powerful why than, you know, double dipping at Chipotle on yeah. Friday. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was, you know, instead of, it was finally having a focus and a purpose, you know, rather than just making money to spend it. Absolutely. And, That's everything, by the way. Yeah. It's and, just and, everything. And then realizing what people, you know, using the army to now think long-term, whereas when I was a kid, you know, prior to 2010, there was no long, long-term was next week. You know, it was the dumbest thing ever. And now it's 
five-year plan, 10-year plan. And it drives my partner nuts. Who's a fixed limit Holden player, by the way, <laughs> um, drives her nuts. She, she's like, I don't even know what is going on next week. And you're talking about <laughs> plans four and a half, six years from now. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, cause we're going to get there. You know, It'll happen you, whether we wanted to or not. Yeah, the ability to look forward, the ability to understand what I didn't, that there was a lot, an immense amount that I didn't know. Um, and being faced with the challenge of conquering my own ignorance was for a what I view as a greater purpose um, to take care of and support my daughter was a very focusing thing. It, it focused me like a laser. And that's something I never had before the Army. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's everything when you're working towards something that's bigger than yourself and ultimately money, you know, the pursuit of just financial gain is a toxic goal in and of itself. It's not, it's not enough to power you. It's not enough to make you do the work that is going to allow you to thrive. You need something bigger than even prestige bracelets, trophies, rings, all these things. None of that is enough to just keep you going day in and day out with focus and intensity. Well, it is for some people. I mean, some people see that as the end goal and like that is their focus. But what, what is the, what is the intrinsic value to you and your future of it's the money and the things you do with the money that you earn. It's not the prestige or like, and I'm, I'll be the first person I'm telling I'm the most outspoken critic, you know, (laughs) criticism be damned about tournament play. And, you know, people, talking about like the people that in the poker world who equate bracelets and titles with prestige and knowledge they're not the same thing <laughs> and you know and it's like but it depends on what you're going for i play cards to make a living and to go better uh, like move ourselves better into the future move my family in the future provide for a family i don't give a damn who knows my name or who you know and i don't care if somebody wants an autograph you know at the table that means nothing like i don't i'll never be the guy to win a poker a bracelet like ever i've played like five yeah. <laughs> so it's well, like you i'll never, never be that guy you, you know because you might just, win it on number six you, you yeah, never maybe know. but <laughs> i can't win something i don't play right and, but you know <laughs> if you won the tournament would you be a better tournament player or would you be a better poker player than when you signed up absolutely not you'd no. be the exact same but you would have a bracelet that's the difference, right? Like yeah. the, you wouldn't fundamentally be a better poker player, have more knowledge, have more wisdom, be able to coach players better by virtue of winning this bracelet. You may by be able one. to charge yeah. some, charge some higher rates. Right? <laughs> yeah, that, maybe I just, it, so, I mean, that, that's a totally different topic too. It's like the difference between cash and tournament. Yeah. I'm very, very biased against the cash, but that's against, that's for my goals. Yeah. I, I'm you know, biased if, too. I'm totally biased <laughs> towards cash game players because that's, what I've sought out my entire career sure. was like just playing cash, staying under the radar, um, improving my game and being anonymous. That was, well, there's that. Yeah. It, that, it depends that was on it. what your motivation is. Right. You know, if you, I, I totally get the other side of it. If you're, if you're a regular guy, even if you're a pro, you know, if that's, that's your, that's your field, that's your profession. And I get it. You know, I understand the, the, the appeal of prestige and like the appeal of being known, and, you know, that was something that I wanted until it happened. And then you're like, well, this sucks. Yeah. Like, I can't get into a game anymore. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of ironic that the thing you strive for is, you know, it, it becomes more detrimental to your yeah. career. That, that, um, that was ultimately what I was, what I was getting at, right? Like this, yeah. the pursuit of like winning a bracelet, whatever it is, like you, you don't want to pursue something, reach it 
and then still feel empty and have nowhere to go because you've just you did it like like an olympian that wins a gold medal and then they've trained their whole lives for that moment and then you know a month later they're like well now what now what what do i do with my life now right yeah and that you know i i can't personally attest to that like i I don't i haven't conquered anything (laughs) you know (laughs) i haven't conquered or achieved anything it's poker is just you know it's my profession that's it it's it's how i make ends meet but like it's not you know, there, there's no secondary goal. As long as I can support my daughter and as long as I get her off to an adult life successfully, then after that, then yeah, I'll fire at some tournaments. Cause why not? <laughs> because I don't care anymore. But, yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, not so much, but right now it's, I couldn't possibly enjoy tournament poker any less than I do now. <laughs> it's it's the, the worst in my mind. That's just my opinion. Obviously it's just my personal opinion. I, I, I share the same opinion, but Maybe for different reasons. I don't know. Like catch game, you're you're so incentivized to play fast. You're so incentivized to like get more hands in and tournaments at various stages. You're incentivized to play slow. And oh my, I can't do it. I hate the pace of tournaments. It drives me completely insane that people are incentivized to stall and take like multiple minutes for each decision. That that is something that like. I've never been able to reconcile. Maybe I'm just an impatient human being, but like, no, not necessarily. Let's I mean, go, man. Like, c- critical decision, tough spot. Yeah, take all the time you need. Work it out. Make a great decision. Yeah. You got do seven off under the gun on the bubble. Just <laughs> throw your fucking cards in the muck, <laughs> yeah, man. Jeez. No, I get it. <laughs> but then, it, you know, that also goes into perception. It's like, you know, that it may be a big decision to somebody else. You know, one, keep in mind, one, three, no limit is nosebleeds to somebody. That's true. You know, it, That's a good just, point. It's all it's all relative, but yeah, I I, t- I share your opinion on that one. I I don't there when I play on the off time that, it, that my the stars align, my schedule is open, and I can actually play a tournament. Keep in mind, this is very rare. I haven't played one in two years, but like <clears throat> you know, the two or three I played when I would go to the with my friends to the series for the summer for the first like three years out of the three or four years out of the army, I'd always just play cash all summer. I'd fire like three tournaments. You know, yeah. and then I plan on firing three tournaments and it'd be like one because <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, I hate this. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I went to the WSOP one year and a friend of mine who is like one of my best friends in the world, he we met playing cash. We had always played cash. And he's like, Brad, let's play a tournament. Like, let's play one of these 1500 WSOP events. And I'm like, dude, I don't want to. He's like, yeah, Brad, do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. He kept on and on and on. And I'm like, fine, I'll play this fucking tournament. And so I'm sitting there and and I'm in like level two or whatever. And I sent him a text. I'm like, yo, how you doing? He's like, oh, I'm playing cash. I already busted. I'm like, you motherfucker. Like, (laughs) you just wrote me. He's already out. Like, you wrote me in like nice hustle, bud. Yeah. Don't ask me for a swap next time. Brutal. (laughs) Um, So then of course, like I played for 10 hours and um, got it in with an overpair versus top pair, busted out and realized again, yeah. Yeah, I don't like these things. These are not very fun for me. Yeah, and it's it's a tactical thing too with me. I mean, yes, it is a personal preference with the everything you just said. The the pace of play, the dynamics, the tanking, the Hollywooding, all the shenanigans that comes with it. Everybody, everybody's a genius. <laughs> like it just I, it drives me nuts to no end. Yes, all that is true, but it comes from a tactical point too. You know, like I'm more effective in cash games because I win more often. You know, you find me, find me a tournament player that wins 70, you know, 75 or 85% of their sessions. It doesn't exist. 
not many cash game players exist. Like that's well, not, not a, that, that's not a thing that exists in no limit. Hold them for sure. No, not no limit. I'm, I meant big. O. sorry. I meant split pot games cash. If you're, if you're winning 65% of your sessions in no limit, you are crushing, you know, yeah. but like, it's just not a thing and hold them. But then there's this cash format of, you know, pot limit split pot games. Where it's really hard to lose, like really hard, you know? And you know, when you're winning, that consistently and winning an hourly rate that looks like a circus rate, you know, and, you know, Hold'em players will tell you, you know, what's, what's the metric. It's time to move up. It's 10 big blinds per hour over a really large sample. If you're winning that per hour, whatever game you're playing, you're crushing. It's time to move up or you should at least consider it, you know? And like, but in big O you can win 30, 50, 80 big blinds per hour. Like that's normal. Like if you're playing one, two pot limit, I mean, you can win 70 big blinds an hour. 80 big blinds an hour and pot limit big O that's stupid. That shouldn't happen. But then like that becomes the norm. And why would I want to play a tournament when, you know, it's like, well, yeah, but when, you know, you win a tournament, you're making 15,000 an hour. I'm like, okay, cool. It happens once a decade, whatever. Yeah. What's your ROI? Uh, 20%. Cool. Yeah, so cool. I Great. <laughs> played this 1500 for $300 uh, on average. That's not, yeah, no not, not exactly exciting. Yeah, and so that leads, and that's the point is that the variance is so god awfully high. It's like I'm going to sit around and like my I have two friends that it's not their main living, but they they're tournament junkies, right? That's pretty much what they do in poker for their for their bread and butter in poker, you know. And then they have one final table a year, probably, and they have one six figure, well, one or two, and they have one six figure cash a year every year, and they're like, oh, I make this much every single year i'm like yeah you're also losing 11 months out of the year like i've had five losing months in 10 years like tell me the difference you have more stress you have more variance i don't well yeah like, it's again i think it's tournament tournament players enjoy chasing the prestige right and i yeah, think that for some people right. for some for some people that resonates with them and that's how they're built and you know, no, no shame in that. That's, that's, no, I think no. that that's a worthy pursuit as well. It, it's just different than my personal pursuit, but I, I respect it. Right. I respect the person that can oh, yeah. battle through these, these massive downswings with like, you know, just grit and perseverance and the knowledge just that keep like firing. keep firing and keep firing. Like, But you know, there's, there's a lot to the financial part of it too, you know, and it's, I don't know a single poker player, a single tournament player that doesn't sell action. And you ask them why they're doing that. Well, I want to reduce the variance. Well, it's good for everybody. If you want to reduce the variance, learn to play cash. You won't have any variance. Well, you will, but not like that. You know, if you want to reduce variance, play cash. Well, I want to take some of the gamble out of it. Play cash. (laughs) You know, it's like, uh, I want to reduce the, I'm not bankrolled to play what I'm, you know, I don't, I can't hit my bankroll can't handle the swings. Well, you're doing it wrong then. Guess you already, you solved your own problem. You don't have, you know, bankroll's not there. But like, I just come to the realization that, you know, you don't, you don't know many, too many cash players that play their regular game and will allow somebody to buy their action. You know, if you're, I see, you know, and I, I used to do it all the time. Like when I was, I was taking shots at huge games. I mean, there was, used to be a huge game here in Denver that I always sold action to on. But because I was playing too big, you know, nobody, very few poker players are bankrolled to play 100, 200 pot limit. And I don't care who you are. You're just not right. Like, I mean, <laughs> like, there's like 10 guys that, that are properly bankrolled for that. Right. Like I, I had, had golf on, on the show and he's sure. like, yeah, like, okay. Uh, you know, I had an 800 K roll and like 
lost 400 K in a day. And it was like, okay, now I moved down stakes. And it was like, it it was pretty interesting hearing his like sort of DJ bankroll shot takes, but like everybody that was playing back then at like, you know, 501 K no limit on full tilt six max. It's like, yeah, nobody's rolled for this. Like everybody's shot taking and some people are going to get really, really hurt. And there are a lot of people who are selling a, a shit ton of action to even be able to compete but like right. nobody's fundamentally rolled for wow. stakes that big or well maybe like <laughs> ghee there's uh, like there's like 12 dudes total <laughs> and then you know there's like 12 dudes that's it very few people you know so and that goes along with back to the original point the foundation of the opinion you know that you and i probably share but it's like if you're doing all these things to make it more like cash why are you just playing cash <laughs> you know and people just like people just like tournaments i, I don't know yeah. There, there's this allure of moneymaker and the multi-table tournament dream. I mean, yep. I, I guess I, I've played, I've played my fair share, I guess, over the years, just messing around. But I, I don't know. I, I don't have that gene, the inclination to be fully invested into tournament poker. I, I've never felt that urge ever. I don't know why. Well, I mean, I get it. I totally understand. There's a million. We could we could talk for hours on that alone. For sure. But, you know, it's it's just a matter of opinion. Whatever works for you works for you. But I don't, you know, I'm still going to joke when somebody says, oh, he, he definitely, he's, he's a good player when they're coming to play like a 5-5 five, five, no limit game. He's a really good player. He has a brace of like, yes, yeah, so does Jamie Gold, whatever. Like, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't make you a genius. It makes, means you won one tournament one time. You know, right. play, play a year and, and never have a losing month and then tell the, me about it. The thing is, like, the people that say that, though, are, are not ever great players themselves so like they can't you know it's it's not like a they they can't make it that judgment call as to like who's good it's basically like who do i think is winning most of the time well that player must be good who who has won a tournament in the past of their life well that that player must be good right that that's really the that's really all that judgment comes down to well yeah and that actually i'm sure you probably have a good perspective on this too is that what the public understands as good you know and what what the public, the, the general mind of poker understands is good and effective and winning player, you know, and we probably um, more or less calling back to that uh, message that we exchanged a while ago where you, you know, is that standard lines achieve standard results. And, you know, when, you know, people talk about, uh, you know, what you're supposed to do and, and the, the maximum perception of what is good and what is effective is changes between players you know so and the 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 bracelets and the titles of tournaments has become this metric of measuring and it's not like it's not a thing like how many tournament players do you know that are just atrocious playing cash (laughs) or just like can't make it work like can't do it many many of them yeah and that's and that's not i'm not trying to like validate the previous discussion the previous opinion but like well, they're different skill sets like yeah one one player invests all their life force and their energy into playing cash naturally they're going to think that the guy who invests their life force and energy that's coming to the cash world is not a great cash player and they're likely not right but you sit me down at a tournament and give me 30 big blinds and i'm gonna fucking fall to pieces i don't know what to do with this stack like (laughs) yeah but give you 450 you're gonna know what to do (laughs) let me start out like level one i'm gonna crush everybody like i've got no fear in level one but at like 30 big blinds i'm like i don't know how to like manage this stack this is a different skill set than what i'm used to yeah well it's yeah it's very true and 
uh, the one of the most common tournament related big O questions I get actually is the only one I get. And I get it a lot is what do you think about big O tournaments? I'll let you know when I play one. <laughs> it's like I've played, I've entered into two, I think ever. And they did not go well because the game is just not meant to be played with 30 to 50 big blinds. It's just not, you know, it's, it's a, it's a post-flop game. It's, it's more of a chess game than it is anything else. You know, there, there's no need to get it in with even equities. There's just no need to do that. Yeah. But when, when you're short, the shorter you are, the more necessary that becomes thus creating a totally different game. And it's just not how the game was meant to be played. And like, I, I got an email from a guy, it was probably like a year ago that says, uh, you know, I, I, I read your first and second book and I, I really applied everything that I learned. And I've won, uh, what did he say? He won, it was like two or three rings or something, circuit rings in with playing big O and as I've won multiple tournaments in playing big O and it's like, it's all thanks to your book. I'm like, dude, there's nothing in my book that applies to tournament <laughs> poker. That was all you. <laughs> like, isn't anything I've ever done that has nothing to do with tournaments. That was you. Don't give me any credit for something you did on your own. You know, so it's like, it's just not my favorite thing. But as soon as the World Series has a bracelet, I will probably fire it three years in a row until I say, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> just to do it. <laughs> yeah, just just to have that experience. Um, th- there is some fun too, like uh, I have to admit that like there's no feeling like in a cash game, there's no feeling like going deep in a tournament, like making your way to the final table, the adrenaline, that energy like that is that is a great and different experience than I feel winning like, you know, a thousand big blind pot playing cash game. It's like the the pot happens and it was like, oh, cool, like that. That was unexpected. And you rack up the chips and like the night ends. Right. But playing down to the final table. I think there is a level of excitement there. That's really hard to hard to find, at least in, in my experience in the cash game arena. I'll take your word for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since I've played a tournament that went anywhere. It's true. It, it's probably been a decade for me as well. So oh. maybe I, I just don't know what I'm talking about, but I, right. I know that like you have a chance to win, you have a chance to win like, you know, a hundred X your buy-in, right? Whereas yeah. like in cash, that is almost never, never that's the a, case. That's not happening. You're never right. winning a hundred X. Like it just, you may no. win a thousand big blinds. I mean, a thousand big blind wins happen. It happens more often in the split pot games than it does in no limit. I know that's kind of like the Holy grail of a no limit session. And, you know, I think I've done it like four or five times ever in my life. Of yeah. Winning a thousand big blinds <clears throat> in one I, session. I remember a, a day that I won 30 K playing 10, 20, no limit. Like that's, Fifteen hundred big blinds. That yeah. was that was a good day, um, but that was the only day that that happened <laughs> for me. Yeah, and, I, proportionally, I don't even know. Yeah, I think about fifteen hundred is about the most. I think the biggest. I had a, I won a yeah forty five hundred and one three once. You know, but there was an actually true one three, not like you know one three ten or something. Yeah, in, that, and like council bluffs or something on my way through a town. It was like and they, nobody was allowing straddles for whatever reason. So it was a true one three. But like those don't happen very often. I won five k and five 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 once, you know. Like, but I don't play those games very often too either. Yeah. But yeah, that that's the point is that in in split pot games, you know, yeah, you'll you'll have a lot of huge winning sessions in in no limit, and then a lot of like break even. And bankrolls are built on break on small wins. We all we all know this. <clears throat> but like in you know in split pot games, when you're playing five five, you can routinely win seven fifty or like eight hundred to sixteen hundred dollars routinely. And like, those are your small wins. We're in like a lot of single pot games. You're going to have, you know, 50 to a hundred big blind wins after yeah. eight hours. You're going to have a lot of those. 
It doesn't sure. happen very often in split pot games. When you run really, really bad, you might have an even, you know, break even or lose a little bit. <clears throat> but the it's just a totally different environment. Yeah, you're making you're making split pot games seem seem pretty good. Just high upside, oh, low downside. <laughs> oh, you, you want me to make that argument? We can go on that for an hour. I, I've made I've made that argument for through multiple um, multiple channels and multiple people. You know, when asked the question of why should I play split pot games when there's so many good hold'em games, <clears throat> and my first answer is it's well, it's meant to be more of a persuasive thing, but you know, it's everything you think about what what people want as like to think of whatever the cliche two five no limit grinder is you picture that guy right the guy that's effective he wins 45 to 55 dollars an hour and has been for five years he, he's a good reg he, he wins his money right what is that guy looking for he wants validation of his skills he wants respect from his peers he wants more consistency he wants to, he seeks to eliminate variance or not eliminate but reduce variance he seeks to get a little bit better, and he also seeks to improve his edge over his opponents. He also wants his lines, his skills, his everything he does about his or her, sorry, um, their game to be viewed as professional or the best or above average, whatever they're looking for. All of that you, you can have in a game that has more skill involved than Hold'em. Like, it sorry it's just the truth you know more variables equals more skill because more variables brings more mistakes more things to calculate when there are more variables introduced in the equation you inevitably introduce more failures more mistakes more problems but people will inevitably not rise to that challenge and they will make mistakes thus giving you more ways to exploit and maximize your own skill and so that's what hold'em players are looking for and here is this game big o that's very much like the chess of poker. And I, I routinely tell people that because the preflop round doesn't almost doesn't even matter, which is blasphemy to a hold of mine. <laughs> like the preflop round does not have nearly the effect that it has in hold'em. Everything is determined on how well you play out the hand so that you can make the perfect decision on the river. And that's one of the first lines that I tell my brand new students is that is our goal when we're learning is to, get you to a point where you can play the hand in a way that allows you to make the perfect decision on the river. Now you think about that in a hold'em context. If you were able to, however you were able to do this, play an entire session where you made literally the perfect decision on the river, which whatever that would be a, ra- a check raise bluff or a value bet that got called, or you folded to a value bet, made the correct fold, whatever, whatever the perfect river decision was, you were able to make that every single time in your, in your session I guarantee you'd have a thousand big blind winning session guaranteed. (laughs) You know, you'd have a crushing winning session. You would almost never lose the only time you lost. And when you got it all in with money with cards to come and then lost, you know, you you would have a very hard time losing more than 15, 20% of your sessions. Probably. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Like the skill gap seems to be fairly wide without a lot of knowledge that players can really easily find on their own. Whereas with other games like Hold'em, you can find knowledge and information and frameworks many, many, many places, right? Sure. When, when there's the absence of that, except for your books, right? Like 
far as I know. Yeah. yeah. It's hard. It's much harder for people to improve. Um, sure. Because again, like the value of coaching and coaches is that coaches are able to see the blind spots that the students don't see. So we're able to find mistakes that the student doesn't even know that they're making, right? Like they would never bring this hand history to a coaching session because they would never know that they made a mistake. Um, and so in a game with very limited information, mistakes are going to be plentiful. The blind spots are going to be huge. And whenever that's the case, there's going to be edge to be had for the players that are more advanced. Yeah. And that's a lot of the things I do with people that, you know, the people that I work with is that exactly that is identity is learning to identify those, those blind spots, you know, as you put it. And, you know, the, the first conversation I have with, with most of new students after we, I learn their background <clears throat> is I tell them to obsess over finding mistakes and that, you know, uh, for whatever reason, the, I don't know, call it toxic masculinity, call it uh, overinflated egos, whatever of, an, of winning good intermediate players. And you know, the type I'm talking about the, the really good intermediates aren't quite professionals, but can think they got everything figured out <clears throat> is the inability to recognize downside as mistakes or even the willingness to look, you know, and the, the players that, that truly become professionals by every sense of the word, look to themselves for mistakes rather than pointing the finger at anybody else. You know, that's the last thing that we as pros want to find is that it was somebody else's fault because I can't change that. I can't learn from that. I can't improve off of that. But if I find a mistake that I made, you know, I can get better. So I tell my students, you know, giving me a hand and this used to happen a lot. It doesn't, it doesn't much anymore, but giving me a hand where, okay, so I had a six, two, three King. It was, Three bets before me, I jammed it. I four bet potted. Everybody called. I flopped ace four eight, <laughs> and four people jammed it all in. And then I paired the board and I scooped. Okay, cool. Like that's no different than a hold'em student coming to you and saying, "So I had aces on the button, and it was five bet before it got to me. I ripped all in and got five calls. I won. What did I do wrong? <laughs> Good does that do? Yeah, you know, it <laughs> doesn't help me or doesn't help you. It doesn't help your game. It's a cool story. That's all it is." So I, I tell people, it's not even it. that cool. Like, yeah, let's be honest, it's, it's not, not even a cool. Story. It's, it's a thing that happened. At yeah, a poker I'm going to think about it. The next five times I lose with aces or the next three times I get a walk, I'm going to think about it and get tilted, <laughs> you know, cause like, why didn't that happen? You know, but like it, it's this fundamental obsession with finding mistakes and finding fault in oneself rather than the game or luck or variance. And, you know, we, I, I firmly believe subscribe to, I'm not believe is the right word that we make our own luck. You know, we make our own variants. We control our own variants. We control our own situations. And when you're in control of that, you know, you're, you zoom out on your graph and it looks like it's just a linear line. You know, you don't have any of this stuff, you know, a long-term. But I said, that's just a reflection of, of professionalism in my mind. It, you know, we all seek to reduce variants. So the ones that actually do, you know, are going to be professionals. I, I, don't, I don't mind variants. To me, it is what it is. Like, I think it's part of part of the gig i guess sure. that's that's kind of part of why i fell in love with poker is yeah. uh embracing the variance i think i think that one one thing that pros do is they're just insanely curious and they never settle on a decision that they think might could have been better whether that decision made them money or they won the pot 
they question whether there was a better move, a better decision that they could have found. And so just never settling on like good enough, always analyzing hands, even when you win them, not when you, you lose pots, but like, how do I maximize value here? Did I miss value? Um, how do I play this hand better in the future? Like it's just never settling and, and maintaining that curiosity and not just like focusing on the times where, yeah, you, you lose a big pot, whatever, oftentimes those hands aren't even the ones that are like the biggest sources of learning and finding ways to upgrade our game. It's, um, a bunch of the other decisions that, that we make. And that's, that's, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I can't, I cannot disagree with a word you said, you know, and that's, that's a really good point. And the irony of variance is that with, we all seek to eliminate it or reduce it, but without it, there'd be no poker. So Eh. <laughs> you gotta, you know, and in the military, we had a saying, embrace the suck, which was like, you know, the, the more we could endure, the better the, the operator we would be, I guess is a loose way of, you know, it's, we can't avoid the suck. So you might as well learn to love it. Yeah. You know, no, nobody wants to sleep in a swamp for 48 hours. Nobody wants to be on a gun looking down us, looking down us, you know, an optic for 25 hours without being able to pee. Nobody, nobody wants that. <laughs> but like, if you embrace it and enjoy it, like, you might learn something. It might be better for it. And that was, again, circling all the way back. Another huge lesson I took away from the Army is embracing the things that allow you to be there, you know, and what it takes to get better and what it takes to learn from things that are inherently not cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, learning hey, from the worst parts of the game. I mean, I run, I run a course every month called Preflop Bootcamp, and it's just on preflop and fundamental play. And like, I'm the first person to say on this show, it is not sexy. It is not necessarily fun, but it is necessary. If you want to upgrade your game, if you want to make an impact, it's step one. I can't change that, right? I can't make it sexier than it is. It's just necessary. Infrastructure week. going. <laughs> it's, huh? infra- it's poker infrastructure. Yeah. like got to happen. Nobody wants to do it, but it's got to happen. Right. So like may as well embrace that and like coming from a trainer and somebody that's creating content and stuff like that it's like well what do i make that makes the highest impact that generates the best results for my clients for my students for my customers and and you have to start with the fundamentals and the the high frequency situations that just occur again and again and again it's not necessarily sexy it's not necessarily fun but it's it's the first step towards becoming a winning poker player you can't you can't avoid it you can't go around it it's just necessary well it's it's funny you bring that up because what what do you find if you teach hold'em players which i don't by the way i have two hold'em students but i'm never gonna say that i'm a hold'em coach like ever <clears throat> so what do you what do you find in in students that that uh blocks their ability to learn like what what are the mental blocks or the personality flaws or um, I'm trying to find a less harsh way of putting it like a, you know, a, a blind spots. Yeah. Something that disallow what disallows people from learning, you know, the people that just never will get it. Yeah. What, I, I have a found that that is in Hold'em. I have a theory on this because I have, this drives me insane, right? Because again, I, I run this course and there are people that take it and then they fail to execute when they're in the arena, like they do well taking the test, they do well. And then they get in the, in the arena and it's like, they just fall apart. Right. And I'm like, how is this happening? Why is this a thing? Why can't you execute on what we've trained? Um, and over time I've just come to the conclusion that we're human beings and human beings are emotional creatures. And 
when our emotions flare up as it relates to playing cards, we get in these high pressure situations and we're, we, we just get emotionally compromised and we forget our training and we just start reacting, right? Like that's sort of like the, the word fish to me and recreational player, whatever whale, whatever people want to call it to describe this type of player to me. That's always felt like a bit imprecise, especially rec. I don't like the term recreational player just because it's like I, I know rec, rec players that play at a higher level than me. Um, they just have a job in the meantime, right? Like it's not yeah. – you know what I mean? Um, no, I totally get it, yeah. So to me, like those type of players are – in my mind, they're instinctual. The, the fish, they sit down at the table. They play based on how they feel in the moment. So they make emotional decision after emotional decision after emotional decision, and they feel like they're doing the right thing. They're making good decisions. They're just reacting on what their emotions are telling them. And I think that's a major blind spot that I've noticed in even my higher level students where something will happen that they don't anticipate that maybe they haven't trained specifically for. And the way that I do my coaching is they send me a video explaining their thought process. I will hear their emotions raise and yeah. then sigh audibly and then go through their thought process. And when their emotions get comp- compromised, they create a narrative. They create a narrative that makes sense of the emotion with, and then they make a decision based on that narrative, which ultimately is not good. Um, right. they, they just forget all their training. And that to me, like in, in Hold'em, it happens a little bit later in the decision tree typically because spots that are unknown – to them they haven't studied they they just kind of revert back to this instinctual type type of player um that to me not understanding the effect that your emotions have and the fiction that your brain tells you while you're playing poker is the ultimate blind spot it's the thing that like you because you convince yourself that like the story that's being told in your head is accurate when it is absolutely not accurate and i mean to me that that to me is just like it's human. It's humanity. We're, we're emotional creatures. We can't get away from it. Nobody's born without an emotion. You can't right. play poker with no emotions. Like it's right. just not going to happen. There's, you know, I, there's a lot to that, you know, and it's, it's funny that we all, that you, that you hear, you see the same problems in your Hold'em students as I do with my high low students, you know, and the ones that, that can't get over that emotional block. And like if I were to answer the same question, like with high low students, the people that can't succeed and just don't get it, if I could oversimplify, are the ones that answer that after they ask me a question, I give them my answer or I go into some giant freaking monologue that lasts three times longer than it needs to. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, the, like to, the one that I just went on right there. No, well, <laughs> yeah, well I do this like <laughs> when when I I so want to overexplain everything because I just I care I take such personal responsibility for the same. people. Yeah. want to learn from me i'm like feel so invested in their success and um but anyway the people that respond to long explanations or any explanation of that it's not an opinion oh i need to clarify that that's not an opinion this was the wrong move for this reason and this reason here's the math behind it and then they respond with yeah but you know it's the yeah but this is why or or here's the other one is the the this the need to explain why you were wrong. And it's kind of like a, a validation thing. Like I need to validate that I was correct in being wrong for some reason. And those are the students and learners or subscribers, whoever that I found don't advance at all 
or very, very slowly. I mean, do you struggle? Do you see that in, in your Hold'em students too? Absolutely. They hedge. They do a lot of hedging. Um, I've actually made it a policy to, and I sometimes don't enforce my policy, but I try to enforce it as much as I can. That like, if we get to a point in the decision tree that we should never be getting to in the way that we did, we just stop the discussion. It's over. You don't get to ask this question about the river because we're not supposed to get here that way. So you don't get that information, right? You made, (laughs) you fucked up four times getting here. (laughs) Like you want my opinion on the river. Well, I don't have an opinion because this this is a, a it's never going to be there. You should never be in this situation anyway. Right. I, it's funny you say that. A buddy of mine that spent the summer in Vegas, uh, this guy lives in Ireland, one of the funniest human beings I've ever run across. So I don't remember who it was, but some somebody he said was a big deal in tournaments. I, don't ask me what it was. I don't know. Anyway, he's like, this guy's really, really good. Like he's, he's very effective. He's one all this, whatever. And they were having a discussion while we were going to have sushi in Vegas. And he's having this whole discussion, the long car ride. And I'm just like sitting here soaking up this information without saying it works. Here's these two hold them geniuses just talking about things I know nothing about. And so this guy, whoever he was explains this whole thing. I mean, a 10 minute thought process from start to finish. And my buddy, his name's Yuri. And he never said a word about it until the end. He's like, what do you think? What should I do here? And he goes, I don't know, man. And I'm not going to try and mimic his Irish accent, but it's like, I don't know, man. It's, I'm just never going to be in that spot. I think you suck for even being there. <laughs> He's, I'm just, you're just never going to be here. You shouldn't be here. You're lost, man. You're in the debt. You're in death Valley when you should be in Connecticut or something like that. Yeah. Like, it's like, we're never going to be here. So I don't see the point of even going into that. It's so that true. Like, Click. <laughs> yeah. It, it, go off. And even advanced <laughs> players, right? Like this sort of arrogance of like, yeah, I, I ran really bad. I, I lost 15 buy-ins in this session and then like going through a hand review and it's like, yeah, but I did this, but I think it's okay because X, Y, Z. And it's like, no, you're rationalizing bad decisions. You're, you're putting, you're trying to make sense of you fucking up and torching stacks and like, just accept it, right? Like we don't need to rationalize our mistakes. We just need to accept that we make mistakes. We're fallible human beings and move on. We don't need to justify them. We just try to yeah. do better in the future. Yeah. And you know, you're, <laughs> you're, you're hitting on like 10 different points in an outline of a book I'm contemplating <laughs> is, is I'm contemplating writing a book about what I've learned teaching. And I, I've considered reaching out to a couple of other coaches that I know and be like, you know, let's collaborate and make something this thick. But like you know, on that, you know, you're like exactly what you're talking about is that when we teach, we learn what makes us the, the things that make us fundamentally human and make us who we are as a species, not poker players, but humans as a species are like one of the they are like the biggest like one through five problems that keep you from being a successful poker player. Ego, this, the the um, desire to acquire recognition prestige prestige the things we want that have no value um the the uh respect every poker player wants to be respected for their talents but it's the ego the number one thing is that that pulls on our ego is losing money you know it's like we now have to justify and get defensive and that leads to exactly what you're talking about that downward spiral of just bad juju up here you know and teaching people and, and teaching and from an objective viewpoint, you know, I did not play this hand. So now let's, let's look at it from an outside perspective. If you can do that with your own game, you are a pro to be. 
And very few people do, at least I've, at least that's my experience is that very few people who do not make a living or at least play at professional level do not do that. They're always looking, they're always pointing the finger at other people. They don't acknowledge how destructive our own ego can be in our poker process. And, you know, like, extremely destructive. Yeah. And like you said earlier, where it's like, if you can turn around and look in, what did I do wrong? Even in the hands you did right, you know, like the Galfont mentality of just always objective and always looking for mistakes, even if it's the tiniest minute betting difference, if you left value on the table and a hand you won, you know, and that attitude, those of us who take that attitude, you know, and it doesn't come natural. I mean, I've, I've been told I'm pretty good at it. (laughs) And like, all I do is every time I lose a hand, you know, I do this a lot of times more in Hold'em actually in Big O's, a lot of stuff in Big O's kind of plays itself, but like, you know, when I play a Hold'em hand that I lose or I get caught bluffing or I, whatever, you know, something that didn't go right, you know, look back, okay, how did, what's the information I had at the time? Was this valid information? Did I act on a tell I didn't have enough confirmations on? Or did I assume anything? Did I jump to any conclusions? Did I make an emotional decision? Did I introduce a concept of revenge? I'm gonna get that guy, you know, or whatever, you know, and then going through that whole thing. And, you know, it's like two or three minutes of thought and like meditation on what did I do? Was I right? And the result of the hand does not matter. And sometimes I do this with hands I won, you know, and hands you lost, they should be exact, the exact same process. And trying to install that in students who are just learning the game is not very productive. So I try not, <laughs> I try to like wait till later to do that. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it's a process that gets you, that leads you down that path that you, you reach eventually. I, I would say that like coaching for me has, I would never have made the connections that I have made as it relates to why people fail, like just the failure points of human beings. I never would have made the emotional connection had it not been for coaching and me just sitting at home meditating on why do some of my guys get it and some of my guys not. What is the difference between somebody who plays poker and it makes sense and somebody who wants to play poker and it doesn't make sense like what's happening there because something is happening like and i'm i'm just the type of person that's so insanely curious and wants to know like why does guy a succeed and guy b fail what's the difference and how do i reach guy b like is are they reachable is it a you know is it just something that i should not spend any energy on if they're not reachable um just a waste of energy right like i don't know And, and that's how I guess I make these connections as a coach. It's made me such a better poker player, just yep. fundamentally understanding what's going on with the human psyche. And really like one thing that a coach will teach you very quickly, at least in my experiences, even when guys are playing high stakes and winning a ton of money, they still feel self-doubt. They still doubt their decision makings they still question everything like there's this this conf this wave of like confidence and doubt and and everybody experiences that so like just knowing that like this is human this is a part of the human experience i'm not the only pro in the world that's like gone on down swings and asked themselves at night like did i forget everything that i thought i knew did i just get lucky for the last decade like what is happening to me right now um, everybody has these existential crises and like, that's okay. Right. I think that's a, a thing that I like sharing on this podcast over and over and over again, because like, we're not unique. This is another thing that I tell my students all the time. <laughs> it may not sound very empowering, but like, 
as a, as a human, you're not unique. You're not special. All the things you think and experience and feel other people do as well. So yeah, I think there's, um, I don't know, a level of, uh, comfortability in just understanding that we're, we're not on this venture alone. We're not experiencing this by ourselves. Everybody feels the same things that we do. Look, I totally get it. You feel like being a lone wolf in your poker journey has hamstrung your ability to realize your full potential. So I'm about to give you a golden opportunity to plug into a supportive tribe that will be the poker family you've always wished you had. How much money would you give for one hour of interactive group coaching led by myself, Coach Thomas, and occasionally past guests of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast? For now, and this will absolutely change at some point in the near future, the price of admission to the Live Poker Power Hour is 100% free. All you've got to do to get your invite is head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com and hop on the VIP newsletter. No more excuses, no more procrastination. It's time to take action and put yourself in position to turn your poker dreams into reality. I hope to see that beautiful face of yours in just a couple of days. What what have you found when you started from the time before you started coaching to now? What what did teaching other players teach you? How did you get better as a player being a coach? Uh, how did I get better as a player being a coach? It's breaking down fundamentally why things happen and what is leading to these decisions and knowing exactly why, right? Like, why do we have a preflop strategy? Why is that even a thing? This is a question that like, I never asked when I was just a player, but then as a coach, I ask, well, why do we do this? Like, why do we have a set strategy that we follow that we just believe for lack of a better word is going to earn money over the long term, right? Like, and then breaking it down and understanding like, oh, preflop strategy is just a model. Like it's just a model that I follow that has proven to generate win rate um, in the preflop phase of this game, right? And all models as it relates to this can be broken with specific variables in play, like just different player types. You're going to deviate. You're going to change your model. But basically just like fully understanding why we do the things that we do, the stumbling blocks that my students encounter, how to be more resilient as a poker player. For instance, like, um, I think affirmations are a big deal as it relates to poker. If you're playing poker and you play for five hours and you get stacked, um, in a spot where you feel like you shouldn't have been stacked, right? It's very easy to say, okay, I'm, I'm a loser. The score is zero to one. And now I just suck at everything. When the reality is like, you've probably made 15 great decisions leading to that point that you've never affirmed to yourself you never celebrated you've never given yourself permission to say like that was a fucking great value bet like put a point on the scoreboard for me right like but i think again that's human nature we dwell on the negative and like self-flagellation was how i powered my poker career um for the first six years just brutally just brutal assessment of my play every day so i won 10 buy-ins i should have won 11 and a half like, what the fuck were you thinking in that one and a half buy-ins that you left on the table, right? Like, that, that's, that was my mentality, you know? It, it wasn't yeah. healthy. It wasn't great. But that was what I used. Um, yeah, so... Do you, start, do you win more? I mean, do you, are you more of an effective player now than before you Absolutely. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm more at peace. I'm more at peace with the whole process of like, I'm sitting here, I'm making good decisions. I know fundamentally why I'm doing it. And win, lose, or draw, like I know I'm a favorite in the games that I play in. So like I have peace with that and I can let it go at the end of my session. And like being able to let go of those emotions when a session ends is ultimately just, you can't put a price on it. It's so huge. No, and that's, you know, that, that's one thing I, I, I learned coaching, oddly enough, is that to be at peace with your decisions. You know, and before I started coaching other players, there's always that aspect of doubt of looking like, did I, was what I did right? Was it correct? Was it mathematically correct? Well, I don't know. I'd have to go look at it. I have to go figure it out. You know, but now in the working on three years now of coaching high low players, I think four years, I don't know. It's been a while. You know, when people work through, they give you a situation, you work through it. And, you know, you're learning along with them too. You know, because if when, when somebody says, hey, what's the equity on this? Or I'll give you an example, like a good example is that I was down in uh, Austin, Texas uh, a month ago, a month and a half ago, somewhere in there. And uh, somebody came up to me and asked me a question. Hey, they're in a bomb pot. So two boards, five cards. <laughs> and uh, someone's like, hey, which hand's the favorite? You know, which hand's the favorite of, I had this, 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 and this. He had this, 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 and this. Here are the four cards on each board. Now, which one's a favorite? And my answer sounded a little smart-ass. I had no intention of being smart-ass. It was just like an honest answer. He's like, so how do you factor, how do you figure this out? I'm like, that depends on how good you are at factoring binomials. And he's like, wait, what? I'm like, well, it's two equations. It's two, you know, you have to and you factor them together. And he's like, wait, like, like math? I'm like, yeah, like math, bud. Like, he's like, well, what's the answer? I'm like, I don't know. Give me five minutes. I'll figure it out. But like, the point is that when this, this thing, this situation comes to me and I have to figure it out, I go through the, I go through the math and I actually have to write it down and figure it out and use the calculators and go through this. And when I tell him what the answer was, is that he was right. And this hand was the favorite, favorite. And I learn along with him too. You know, I just learned that situation is now what it is. And I know mathematically, and, you know, I don't have to worry about separating fact from opinion. Now I know what the fact is and I know the difference. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, and I've found that a lot that is a big deal. If you can separate that, the difference between fact and opinion in poker is a big deal. I mean, do you, if you deal with that with a lot of your students, like people that clearly need to define what's a fact and what's an opinion? I mean, I, I guess it's just, everything ultimately is an, an opinion. It feels like, like, especially as it relates to like the variables of poker, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, like, I don't know. I, like, even when I try to prove something, it's impossible to prove yeah. because I need to model my opponent's strategy exactly. And the only way to do that is to strap them down in a chair and like torture them to, to get there. And they <laughs> may not even know what their strategy exactly looks like. Right. So like, it, it's hard. I mean, I think that some spots where, you know, one example is I had a student, we were talking about um, facing check raises on like basically a two, one gap is what I called them because I, I love specificity as it relates to language. Like people want to say, Oh, low boards. Well, yeah. But like, what is a low board? Like there's different versions of low boards. So like, like a, a two, one gap is like eight, five tray, right? Like a five tray rainbow. Like we face a check raise with eight, five tray. Like what's the best way to proceed and position with our range. And then, um, 
you know, what turn cards are like the, the death turn cards. And so I don't know the answer to that. Coaching is also like, like you said, it's a, as somebody in my group, a high level player says it's, it's a shared journey of exploration between student and coach. Like coaches don't have all the answers, right? We, we no. love finding answers. Um, and by the way, that's the first sign that you need to find a new coach is if they never say, I don't know. Um, because yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Because there's so many spots where you don't know, but it's like, yeah, okay, let's look at these two, one gaps and see what happens. Like let's create some models and kind of pick it apart and try to create a path, um, to play these type board types better. And like, then that's his homework. And he comes back like a NASA rocket scientist with all of this information. And it's like, sweet. Like (laughs) he's basically, I gave him the homework assignment and I get to learn along with him. And yeah, it's just, uh, that's a good point. Uh, that's that's a that's a great quality behind instruction in general. <clears throat> and you know, I, I routinely so my dad lives in Phoenix. I'm about to move down there, I, I believe. And anyway, he has been a consultant, a business consultant in like a food safety and regulatory industry for a very long time. And what him and I do are essentially the exact same thing. And and you you as well, you know what we when we teach people, when we instruct people. And one of the things that he says is that the consultants that came before him, that they've, that the company, the client has hired, have told him routinely is that we don't, I worry when, when a consultant thinks they know everything. And it's, it's weird to have somebody else in a different, a totally different industry who, you know, he knows nothing about poker other than what I've told him you know, it comes to the same conclusions that we do about instruction and coaching and teaching. And that, you know, when somebody has the ability to say, I don't know the answer to that, they have the ability to learn and grow. And I found a lot of poker players don't ever achieve that until they become an intermediate level. You know, they don't achieve the ability to say, I don't know the answer to that question. I also don't know how to find it. And, you know, there is no you can't really just Google your problems in poker. A lot of times you, you can, but you're going to get a lot of bad information from, you know, the you, forum trolls of the world. You can ask the crowd, but the crowd, the crowd is just going to agree on the person who sounds the smartest. Yeah. And they're also going to agree on what's socially acceptable, you know, and that goes back to something we talked about earlier is that the socially acceptable, the crowd opinion, the, the consensus among the group is almost never the correct answer because if it was, everybody would be a professional, you know, and this mantra that I've now repeated twice is that common lines and common attitudes will achieve common results. Standard lines achieve standard results. So if, you know, if you want to have the same results as the crowd, which generally is not a professional game, then by all means do what everybody thinks is the right thing to do. You know, and one of the biggest uh, things I point out to big O players is um, something I put into, I don't remember which book it was one or two, is that the cardinal sin of high-low is limp three-betting preflop with aces. Because in a game that is naturally opaque in the early parts of the game, like early parts of the hand, preflop and on the flop, you cannot put somebody on five cards ever. I don't care who you are. Like, I can't do it, <laughs> like at all. And you most certainly can't do it preflop. So why, what benefit could you possibly find behind giving away information where none can be had? And, you know, in a game where there's billions of combinations of hands to play. Why would you narrow it down to like 12, you know, and you see the same thing with Holden players. They do the exact same thing in the exact same method 
you know, they, they have this, this idea in their mind that they need to limp three bet Queens plus and, you know, and just go bananas with ace king suited for whatever reason, pre-flop. And they don't think past that and they don't have the understanding of the value that they're losing by giving away that information. Most of that stuff, I think in, in today's today's, it, it comes out of like the turn or the river where sure. it's like, okay, you've chosen to take a line that only a handful of hands you ever play will ever take that line. And then it's just a matter of like, is this exploitable and in which way? So is it exploitable by calling because they are only taking this line with bluffs or is it exploitable by folding because they just never have a bluff? I mean, and that's something that like, that's where people back themselves into corners and hold them. Um, It's just deeper in the decision tree. They take lines that they only have value or they only have bluffs and like, that's it. That like, you're just done when you do that. And you're playing against a clever opponent that's able to hand read and put the variables together. Yep. You're toast. You got no you know, hope. Yep. I call that concept transparency. You know, it's a, if if what you're doing is fully transparent, even the dealer knows what you have. You done messed up. Like you, done. you know, you, most of the time, <laughs> I will say there is there's one exception. It's when you're playing somebody who is totally oblivious, right? Sure. Like, like oh, no, of you know, th- that's that's the exception. Like to the observant opponent, don't you know, giving away that information. Like, I like that concept transparency. That's a great, yeah. that's a great term. I'm probably, I'll attribute it to you, but I'm probably going to steal it. By all means. Um, <laughs> There's no patent on anything. <laughs> it's, I mean, if, if you say into transparency and big O, you might want to cite my book, but other than that, you're good. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, you know, there were, I've played pots, you know, um, I, I've seen pots where it's like, yeah, I'm playing against a massive whale and like the cocktail waitress knows that like i'm never bluffing here but like my opponent does so like who cares i mean that's another thing too where i think people let opinions and social pressure get to them where it's like yeah i could have i could have bet like 3x pot here but i don't want to look like an idiot when i do it because i i never am bluffing i only have value and it's like dude make the decision that makes you the most money. We're not here. We're here to make money. We're here to maximize win rate, not to look cool to these, this person across from me. Right. Right. So like, it doesn't matter. Like I said, if the cocktail waitress knows you're not bluffing, as long as your opponent doesn't know, maximize it, go for it. That's one of the things that when I, when I do play extended hold'em sessions, I find myself doing this a lot in Arizona, um, during COVID times. So that's all the games that are running. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of the regular Hold'em pros, um, or I don't, know, I don't want to classify them as anything, but the regulars who generally win. You know, they get stuck doing things the way they do things, and they also attribute. I call this the Phil Helmia syndrome. So uh, it's when you automatically assume and believe, truly believe that everybody knows everything you know, and that you expect people to act on knowledge they don't have. And so when I tailor a line and I, I do this, like you have to do this in every game you play is that when you tailor a line and trying to make it the most effective line you can, it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you perceive. We tailor our lines based on them and what they perceive. There are so many times I'll text my, my girlfriend, who's also a professional, she plays fixed limit. And I explain a line and she's like, how did that work? I'm like, I don't know. This is the dumbest line ever. It shouldn't ever work, but it just did. And, you know, because we take a line that manipulates our opponent's weaknesses, not a line that we perceive to be weak, strong, acceptable, whatever. 
it's all about them. And I could play the exact same hand four different ways. You do this. I'm sure you've seen the same situation. You play the exact same hand four different ways and get four different results, all of which may have been correct, but all of which were dependent on your opponent. Yeah. You, like you take, there's lines you can't take against a pro and you most certainly can ram up somebody's Gamgees that is played three times in their life. Like it just, you tailor your, your actions to your opponents. Right. It's all about their perception. It's yeah. not about what you believe to be your reality, because I think that like even our realities are biased and, and not accurate. So like, sure. it's just about the perception and a story that a story that just sticks with me, uh, was in Foxwoods early on friends with Vanessa Selbst went to visit her. We played together and she made a comment, just like an all fan comment when we were playing, it was like, I always know what you have in the pots that I'm not in with you. And I'm like, like it, it just kind of like clicked, like, yeah, that's what a poker. Compliment. Right. Like that's that's poker where I'm <laughs> what playing a compliment. I'm, you know what I mean? Like I, I was so arrogant and stupid back then that like I didn't even <laughs> I didn't I didn't even see it for the compliment that it that it was, but it was like oh, that one. that's what poker should be, right? Like your friend that you play against, they if you're playing against lesser competition that's yeah. weaker and you're exploiting them, they should know what you have every time and it doesn't matter. But when you're playing yeah. against them, it should be less transparent, right? Like yeah. you, they should be guessing. That's just the nature of playing cards against human beings. Yeah. And there's transparency is a fun one to mess with because there's, there's plenty of times where you have to avoid it. I mean, you should, and, and I find it, I'm avoiding it most of the time and hold them. But like in big O, there are times that you just have to disregard it because the math dictates. So, you know, and it, it, you're okay with explaining, basically turning your hand face up because that's what makes sense. You know, and it's the same thing. And, you know, you find you can find that situation a lot and hold them too. If you flop top set on a really gross board, you know, I don't know, I get king nine eight, you know, nine eight of hearts, and you have two black kings or something, you know, it's like, and you get a lot of action, you, you can justify turning your hand face up. You know, you're not going to be trying to, you know, trick people into doing a lot. If it's a multi way pot, there's a lot of times where, you know, you're just going to turn it face up and slam it in the middle. And uh, that may be a bad example, but you know, <laughs> I think like, it is. I'm never turning over top set. <laughs> with, well, when they I'm, can saying, have I'm trying to sets. relate. I'm trying to relate to like. I'm trying to give you a big O situation related yeah. to Hold'em, but like, it's a tougher like equity distribution. I, um, sure, I, I, maybe I like know. you have a straight flush draw or something in Hold'em, and it's like, okay, whatever. Like, let's get the money in, and here's my cards. Best of luck to you. Yeah, I mean, or you have the hand that everybody suspects you to have, and the situation dictates that you're not trying to hide anything. You just basically, this is what it is. We're too short to worry about it. Make your decision. You know what I have. I, I think you the know? shortness mm-hmm. actually creates more opaqueness. So like a hundred, yeah. hundred big, big blind poker, I think typically hold them at a high level. You're rarely, rarely. So I guess nutted up that you're just transparent in that you have like only great hands. So I think that like, in spots and hold them when you only have great hands, you've probably fucked up somewhere along in the decision sure, tree. Sure. Oh, of course, like yeah. live poker or like poker, at like 500 big blinds deep or a thousand big blinds deep. You just get situations where it's like bet three betting on the turn and everybody and their mom knows you don't have a bet three bet on the turn bluffing range. Yeah, and course. you just, you just do it to do it. And yeah. that's just what it is. Yeah. Or a river check raise. Sure. Like people that like there's so I've, I've found that i mean i never really considered that to be out of bounds 
you know, until I started playing Hold'em in Arizona, <laughs> where it was like, for some reason, that was an alien concept. Nobody did it. Yeah, nobody. And, uh, well, that's the thing. Weak players don't like that's. Yeah, it just nobody did it. <laughs> I was like, you know, and they're like, oh, you have to have this. I'm like, or not, you know, but it, it's, you know, transparency is inherently volatile and also relative. You know, what, what is obvious to me is, you know, concealed to you and vice versa. You know, what, what is blatantly obvious in your face, I've made never have seen before, you know, <clears throat> and being able to translate that into an action that is profitable is a skill in itself. And one that I try to teach students, but it is, a flawed process obviously it's a very subjective yeah it's tricky like what you mentioned there about like in arizona and river check raises being like never bluffed or dramatically under bluffed like that's a hole that's available to exploit right like that is that's an opportunity to either bluff some folks out who are dramatically overfolding by check raising rivers um or to overfold yourself to river check raises because it's so naturally under bluffed. I think that like those spots, those are the points in the decision tree as it relates to no limit hold'em where the value is. Like uh, one of the smartest poker players and minds that I, I've ever met in the world told me 10 years ago that like you're always going to be able to find an edge in hold'em. It's just not going to be early in the decision tree. Like you're just right. going to have to get deeper to points to places that are uncharted territory for lots of people and try to find the gold there. Um, whereas I, you know, my assumption and how you're describing big O, there are a lot of these uncharted territories, um, or the perception is they're uncharted when yeah. the reality is that there is a model there that gets the gold. Well, and there, there is a, yes, there is. You are correct in that assumption or that finding it. it big O has so many variables and so many, every situation is different, you know, and the, the complexities of mistakes are vastly larger, you know, like in, you keep, you keep bringing up the decision tree and I know exactly what you mean. Um, if not by that name, but like the spectrum of that butterfly effect is like five X in big O. Cause it just, there's so many more things to think about. And, you know, it's, I find that, getting to those empty places and finding the gold, as you say, there's a lot more paths to do that, you know, than I, than I found in Hold'em. Maybe that's my own ignorance. I'm not nearly as good of a Hold'em player as I am a, a split pot game player, but like, I would say that if you've invested your time and your energy, you've written four books on this exact subject, right? Like in a place that's under explored, understudied, undereducated, you're going to find more nodes that, yeah give you ev i mean if i could go back and play poker in 1980 against the best no limit hold'em players in the world it would be a money printing machine like every node you would be finding just tons of value everywhere you look but like the game the game gets more advanced players learn um they shore up those decisions in the decision tree early on you have to uh, as as I'm fond of saying, drag them out there in the deep waters and drown them in places that they're unfamiliar with. The Stu Unger line. Is that Stu Unger? <laughs> no, I said, no, the line, I, like a line in poker. The the doing all of that was what Stu Unger did, you know, back in right. the old days. Exactly, and, because he could think about, they had no idea. They're just yeah. like, you know, trying to kind of feeling around in the dark. You ever, you ever thought about what, uh, you know, whether or not his greatness was just being 20 years ahead of his time or whether or not like 
you think if we brought any number of 12 people or, you know, take your pick of a hundred top pros in any field and brought them back to 1985, you think they'd have the same success you did? Uh, probably. You think so? Why? Like, you mean the top players now, if they existed in the eighties? Yeah, but they can't bring anything with them. Like they have to bring just the, their knowledge. Like there's, there are no computers back then. There are no phones. There's no, you know, there was like three books on poker and two of them I don't were know. super system. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I, I, do you I don't know. I don't know the answer. It's really hard to know, right? Like it's really hard for me to, to know what is ability, learned ability and what's built on a foundation of knowledge that was existing and available at the time. Yeah. I, I would say this though. I would say that, had Stu Unger lived in today's day and age, I think that he would not have been as successful as he was in the eighties. That's because I think he was too emotionally compromised to find sustained long-term success in today's poker environment. I, I I did a a greatest of all time, um, little silly Twitter tournament, uh, Mm -hmm. with brackets and everything like that. And I think I, I had four, 64 players, so there were four brackets of 16. And Stewie, I put as the third seed in his bracket and caught a lot of shit for ranking him uh, third and not one. And in actuality, I had discussions with, I think it was Berkey, we were talking about it, and I had Stewie ranked much lower than three, actually, from the stories that I've heard of Doyle saying that, well, it's a cardinal sin, right? When, When Doyle says Stewie was a bad cash game player, that sort of automatically knocks him down a bunch of pegs in my mind. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, it's all perception. I don't, I don't know if, if the crushers of today could, I think I, there's one guy that I think could have, and Victor Blom, I think that dude could have been successful at poker. He, he's kind of like Stewie in his volatile nature, but like guy that just, He's like, oh, cool. I'm going to start playing PLO. Yeah, I'll just start playing 500, 1000 to kind of learn how this game works, right? Like, it's like, who is this person? You know, they, yeah. they, he wrote his own playbook. Anybody that can write their own playbook, I think, could have had success um, in the 80s. Yeah. But it's, but it's hard to know. I would love, I mean, I, I don't personally know anybody who knew Stu Unger. I've played with people, like, I've played cards with Lane Flack a few times who knew him. Um, I've never, I never really talked to anybody that was, you know, uh, a dominant force in the day back then, but that, you know, that'd be one of the questions. If that ever came up, I would love to know the answer to that is that how would you think that and vice versa, you know, if you, if you were to teleport 1981 Stu Unger to 2020, you know, how, how would he do, or, you know, 2006 or whatever, whatever, anywhere after post poker room, you know, how would you think he would have done? And then vice versa, you know, you snap, you know, snap uh, um, any of us or whoever you want back to 1985 or 1980, you know, that how would they have done? I, I feel I might be a little biased on that because I, I've played with plenty of people who've been playing cards since the seventies. I haven't found too many who cut it. <laughs> I guess that, you know, they're like stuck in their ways or, I mean, I'm, that's not, that's not like a knock to the old guard, but like they you know, get the, their path is well-worn and traveled and they can't, yeah. they don't adjust. You know, it's the old man coffee type situation where the old man's been winning for 10 years with their specific particular style or 20 years yeah. and they stop learning and the game passes them by and they like, 
you know, they become the old man in the neighborhood that shakes their fist at the young kids like, ah, what are get you off, doing? Get off my lawn. Call yeah. my limp three vet. <laughs> yeah, get off my lawn. Why are you raising my blind? You know, the, the, yeah, the shills, like the shills that start games early in the morning where it's like I raise their blind and like they just glare at you Throw for a, fit. Yeah. a minute for raising their blind. It's like, dude. <laughs> what's there's, going on i know on exactly here. what you mean there's this there's this dude in uh, austin texas who i won't name drop but he uh he's like that you know the old guard it was just a just a crusty mean old guy and one time somebody some hero of poker got him super high one time and i actually got an honest statement out of him for like once ever that wasn't you know some dick <laughs> thing to say like and i i said he mentioned something along the lines, he got involved in a conversation on how poker's changed. And I, and I, somebody said, you can't do that anymore. And, you know, he's like, he's like, well, you know, now every, everybody's thinking with their coaches and their books and, and their computers and internet ruined poker. And I, against my better judgment, engaged him in conversation. But like, <laughs> I asked him, I was like, is that, well, what did you have to do? You know, in 1985, what did you, what did you have to do to win? You know, what was, what was the most you had to study? And he's like, study. Oh, I just showed up and played craps on my break. And, <laughs> you know, he's like, all I had to do is just not give away money and I'd win. And it's just like, click. I'm like, here's the epiphany is that back then all you had to do was not suck and you were a pro. Right. You know, so and why put it in work? Yeah. And it's just like, and I'm like, wow, that carried over 35 years later. And now you're trying to play 12% of your hands. I wonder why you never get paid. Yeah, you, you never evolved. You never studied. You, you never grew. You never put your time in doing the shitty ass work that's necessary to be successful. How do you how do you expect to reap the rewards? Right? Like you, you oh, want yeah. everybody wants the the fruits without putting in the effort. But like that's not how poker works or the real world. You just got to work. Works. Anything um, worth attaining is is by definition difficult, or it should be. Exactly, <laughs> um, Greg. We we've gone a little bit over the the standard CPG episode. I've missed I like I, I've missed a hundred questions here. I, I of my my normal questions. So well, let's do um, it again. Let's do yeah. it again sometime. Yeah, let's do it again. I, I would love to have you back. And yeah. Um, yeah, we'll just close down with you know a couple couple questions here. And sure. what's a project you're working on right now that's near and dear to your heart? Uh, project near and okay. Well, there's plenty of projects I'm working on, none of which are near and dear to my heart. <laughs> but. Uh, um, getting my daughter through high school that that's near and dear to the heart. But as far as poker goes, um, I am in the process of, I'm as soon as I move, I'll, I'll finish up book number four and I'll be done with that series. Finally. Um, that I hope it'll be out by the end of the year, but meh, probably early next year. Yeah. Um, also I'm my video, my instructional video library is getting a little bit hard to handle. It's, uh, I have over 130 videos um, for just big O and, and, uh, PLO eight. And I'm, I'm going to be migrating to a streaming platform of some kind or a YouTube channel or something where people can pay by the month rather than six months or a year that I do now. Um, because you can download my videos. So I don't want somebody to pay for a month and download them all, you know, and take off, but, um, eventually doing something like that. Um, and trying to, same thing I was doing from day one is I, I want to grow the game. My number one priority is growing big O and high low games and trying to get Holden players to understand that there are bigger and better things out there. And there are that you can benefit your Hold'em game. You want to get better at single pot, learn to play a split pot game and learn to play it well. And you're going to learn concepts that you've ne- didn't even know existed that will help your Hold'em game. 
And I guarantee you that in this conversation, you've at least reached thousands of people who probably primarily only play No Limit Texas Hold'em. And I so. <laughs> seriously yeah, hope so. The, the pitch is the pitch is good, right? There's edge to be had um, if you're willing to start. You know, you know the beauty of learning different games is that when the skill gap is small, like the no- yeah. when there's not much knowledge, you can get better to a higher level of play much more quickly than like Hold'em, where you have so much to learn just to get the foundations of the game. You play a game that's understudied, you can just hop right in after learning some – you can be like that dude in the 80s that was like, if I don't give it away, I win money, right? Like that's yeah, right. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad spot to be in by playing no. some of these different games. Yeah, it's it's a yeah a lot of projects working on, but that's that's a big one. I, I would I really would like to grow the game, and I don't know. I, I feel personally obligated to do so. I, I don't know why, but you know, it's we had we've had so much. We as the poker community, we as poker players, hold them. Everybody has had so much taken away from us. You know, with the Black Friday thing, and now with COVID, and like you know, it's it seems like every five years something happens that you know, takes from the poker community. And, you know, we, I mean, I I don't want to get too philosophical on it, but like, you know, I feel kind of like if I have a way to expand people into other games and bring more players into the game, you know, then that's what, what better way to use talents, exposure, whatever, you know, to grow the community. And, you know, it's, it's not just a game we play. It's not just a profession. And we all want better things for the community. And, you know, anything I can do to, to achieve that or point towards that direction, you know, is, a, is something that's kind of near and dear to my heart. Yeah, man. And it's, it's a worthy, noble cause. And I, I think, too, as poker players, I talked a lot about emotions earlier. And sure. the reality is that you play a game that is a – well, it's not it, – Technically, it's not a zero-sum game, but a zero-sum game where your job is to stab your opponent in the neck and watch them bleed out on the felt. And you do that long enough, you (laughs) having a high emotional IQ or EQ, it's going to have an effect on you. So giving back is ultimately very, very fulfilling. And, you know, this is the why that drives this podcast, the why that drives my coaching, the why that drives my content is I love giving back. I love helping guys. I love people. I love seeing it click for people and then making the jump. Like that's what I live for and ultimately gives me more fulfillment than blindly playing cash games ever has. And I'm, I'm just, I'm very thankful and grateful for that opportunity. Um, it is, it is a very rewarding, the most rewarding feeling in poker I get is not when I have my biggest winning set is not when I win 19 sessions in a row or, you know, go 24 for 25 in a month or, you know, or whatever. It's no, like it has nothing to do with my results. The, the most fulfilling and rewarding is when I get a phone call from somebody I've taught and in like, I'll give you an, an example. Hey, is I got this phone call in a November with a student who signed on in January. And he said, I want you to know that in the 16 hours of coaching I paid for you, that X amount of dollars led to me paying for my college tuition for both of my kids. And it's like, he's like, I couldn't have done that without you. Or I had another student that said, you know, I signed on with you nine months ago and I just used my winnings to buy a bar. And it's like, that will change my life. Thank you. 
And it's like, they're, they're just learning a game, but it's like, that's the most rewarding feeling I've ever had in poker. Or when I get some random email, you know, somebody, Hey, I read all three of your books and I've, I won 20,000 in two weeks in a, a, a five, five game. It's all because of you. It's like, no, you did that. But you know, it's, that's the rewarding, like, there's just no more uh, fulfilling thing in poker is that seeing somebody change their lives because they learned for 16 hours or eight hours of poker, whatever. Absolutely. It's so rewarding. I love it so much. Same, same. And for folks who would like to possibly get coaching from you, who would like to investigate big O the split bot games, where can the chasing poker greatness audience find you on the World Wide web? Um, so you can find me on Twitter, gregvale 85 or my website, doublesuited.net. Um, it's more of a retail or a contact form. There's, I don't have any, um, uh, I don't have any content up there. It's just for to sell my books and get a hold of me. My books can be found there or on Amazon or anywhere you find the books. Um, audio books are only available through like Apple, um, Apple, Amazon, and those, those regular places for audio books. I mean, um, I'm sorry, uh, ebooks, not audiobooks. Can't have, poker audiobooks are hard. Uh, <laughs> imagine saying five cards with a board with audiobooks. <laughs> I made I made an audio pack for preflop bootcamp because some of my guys are audi- auditory learners, and you could do that. Yeah, it, you could do hold them for audio, but it was only. <laughs> uh, I, I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'll just knock it out in a couple hours, and it was like, nope. <laughs> no, nope. <laughs> I'm describing ranges over and over and over again it was like oh my god i hate this <laughs> this is yeah you this was to. not good i learned that the hard way in like the second coaching call i ever had it was like when somebody i have to write down every hand because you know while they're explaining it to me i there's no way i can just think about it and talk about it audiobooks especially big o is not happening yeah not <laughs> happening can't, cannot be done um, Man. Yeah, other than that, um, my library is available uh, personally through me. You can email me at gregvale at doublesuited.net and I can get people access to that. Perfect, man. And I'll put uh, the links to click through on the show page. So you can just click through the show page, find Greg, get some coaching. Man, it's been great having you on. I'm very grateful for your time and your energy and can't wait to do a round two where you know we get into into the more standard uh chasing poker greatness questions that we just totally bypassed today i know it's all right that tends to happen i always want to ask some questions too so we uh <laughs> end up in, end up talking for hours but yeah let me know let's let's do it again perfect man sounds good take care all right buddy thanks thank you so much for listening to this episode of chasing poker greatness if you have yet to subscribe to the show, please take a second to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. For more content from me, Coach Brad, please visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash enhance your edge, and I'll see you next time.